What can I say? I'm spoiling you. Courtesy of my esteemed patrons, here is another one-segment short in Moscow Shadows, this time looking specifically at Vladimir Putin's latest article on the historical unity of the Russians and Ukrainians, and quite what I make of it. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So, for most people, when you have a midlife crisis, you might get yourself a younger girlfriend or perhaps a motorbike. But when you've already ridden with the Night Wolves outlaw motorcycle gang, and you've allegedly acquired a, as girlfriend a rhythmic gymnast 30 years your junior, well, those routes pretty much have been closed to you. So, well, if, it, if Putin's anything to go by, what you do is you become an amateur historian. Look, we knew he was interested in history before. It's one of the few things he seems to read. He likes to pepper his speeches and so forth with various, not always particularly well-chosen, historical analogies. But this particular article that he wrote on the whole subject of why Ukrainians and Russians are essentially the same people is perhaps a pretty good example of some of the pitfalls when you are essentially the autocrat of your state. There's no one really there to say, boss, it's probably not a good idea. Boss, it's certainly not good history. And so this is what we end up with. I don't propose to go through it in detail, but instead what I really want to do is bring out three aspects of it, or to put it another way, three parts, because in some ways it does actually segue through them. First of all, we have what you might think of as the historical bit, in which he's essentially taking a long durée look at Russian and Ukrainian history, trying to demonstrate that actually they are pretty much one and the same, and that the notion of a distinct Ukraine is actually historically wrong. Um, because the irony is actually there's, there's a lot of uh, Ukrainian nationalists who in some ways would perversely agree, but they would regard Russia as the bastardized semi-Mongol offshoot of the proper Kievan Rus. But anyway, I digress. And I mean, the problem is that, look, I mean, a lot of this is, is as I say, historically quite iffy. Um, but nonetheless, it does reflect the fact that there is a genuine difficulty in trying to actually talk about truly distinct histories of Ukraine and Russia for much of the past period. Now, look, before anyone starts to, to write in within furious terms, I'm not saying that I agree with Putin that Ukraine does not exist. Um, because, of course, countries do evolve, countries change, countries blend and merge. But nonetheless, I think he does have a bit of a point. The problem is that he doesn't truly appreciate the extent to which that doesn't really matter. So what if in the 15th century this happened, in the 16th century that happened? We're talking about the here and now. And the trouble is that as soon as we start getting closer to the here and now, essentially with the 20th century, we get into the second 
part, what we could really think of as the polemical bit. And he essentially affirms, and this is actually a quote, and by the way, I'm, I'm working off the Russian version that was up on the Kremlin uh, website. I understand there is a, an English version that's going to be out. It might be out by now already. I will double check, and if there is, uh, as usual, I will put a link in the program notes. But anyway, he says, quote, Modern Ukraine is entirely the brainchild of the Soviet era. Indeed, he actually goes on to say, Russia was actually robbed. The point he makes is that the, the Bolsheviks, or Lenin in particular, he really is not a fan of Lenin. And he once again uses a metaphor that he's used many times in the past, which is essentially that Lenin's nationalities policy placed a time bomb beneath the Soviet Union that exploded with the collapse of the, of the Communist Party. But anyway, his view is that actually the Bolsheviks, who didn't really think that borders, especially within the Soviet Union, mattered that much, who were aiming to build a glorious socialist and then communist utopia in which there wouldn't be any national borders at all, they fairly arbitrarily drew borders, moved territories and such like. And this is why we get the the basis of the modern Ukraine, which actually incorporates various bits that really shouldn't be shouldn't be there. And also, let's face it, at the same time, Ukraine lost a big chunk of territory. I mean, his view is, and he actually says this, fine, you want to be an independent country? No problem. But take only what you brought. And his view is that uh, modern Ukraine should accept the borders it had in 1922 when it was incorporated into the newly formed Soviet Union. Now, not only would that mean it does not include Crimea, it also actually would mean that it would not include Lviv and the whole western chunk of the country, which at that point was controlled by Poland. Um, so, I mean, to call it a, a mischievous suggestion would perhaps be a little bit too generous to Putin. But no, this is his point, though. It's basically, look, Ukraine, insofar as there is a Ukraine, was a brainchild of the Bolsheviks, was established in its current format by them, and therefore should not be regarded as some deep historic and organic force. And let's face it, that's where we move to the third part, which, if I really wanted to label it as something, I would call the paranoid bit. Because he moves into talking about this uh, insidious anti-Russian project, which he regards as being entirely alien to, to the Ukrainian people and being Western-backed, Western-inspired, even Western-planned. And it's been foisted on the Ukrainians by a leadership which is little more than really just the, the puppet of the West and foisted on them under the threat of intimidation with barrages of ahistorical propaganda and the like. Let me just give you a couple of quotes. Uh, again, this is, this is perhaps not exactly the way it'll be in the English version, um, but nonetheless, which gives you a pretty good sense of the kind of tenor of the, really the third part of, of his essay. He says, it would not be an exaggeration to say that the course toward violent assimilation, toward the formation of an ethnically pure Ukrainian state, aggressively disposed towards Russia, is comparable in its consequences to the use of weapons of mass destruction against us. Let me just unpick that for a moment. Uh, again, it's all about violent assimilation. It's this idea that Ukrainians are being forced against their will 
into forming this, this ethnically pure Ukrainian state. And again, when one uses terms like ethnically pure, you know, we can pretty much see the Nazi flags fluttering in, 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 in our mind's eye. And that's not at all accidental. Um, aggressively disposed towards Russia, you know, yes. <laughs> How dare they resent uh, having Crimea stolen from them and a sort of civil war being whipped up in the Donbass. The interesting thing is that uh, phrase, the use of weapons of mass destruction against us. Now, technically, it's worth noting that under Russian uh, security policy and military doctrine, the use of weapons of mass destruction or even the threat is potentially grounds for war. Now, I do not believe this is in any way a hint that that's where we're heading, and I'll come to that right at the end. But again, it's, it's significant when that kind of language is being used. And then he goes on later and says, and we will never allow our historical territories and peoples who are close to us living there to be used against Russia. And to those who make such an attempt, I want to say that in this way they will destroy their country. Again, it's a thing we've heard before, which is essentially an attempt, not very successfully, to portray a more in sorrow than in anger case that if Kiev continues on its current route, this is a self-destructive path, and that although it will bring no joy to Russia, nonetheless, what happens will happen. This notion that somehow it is the Ukrainians who are hostile to the Russians totally underpins not just this particular article, but clearly all Russian official policy. And, and it's quite noteworthy how especially, not exclusively, but especially in that last third, we have all kinds of, well, to call them, shall we say, tone-deaf appeals to the Ukrainians would be really understating it to an almost caricature level. Um, the Ukrainian famine of the Stalin years is dispensed with as a common tragedy. Actually, no, there was something very distinctive that happened to the Ukrainians. And that, let's be honest, was engineered by the Bolshevik regime in Moscow. Now, this is one of the things about the Putin era. They have tried to cherry pick the bits of the Soviet era that they like and eschew all responsibility for the bits they don't. If you are going to claim credit for the Great Patriotic War, if you're going to claim credit for modernization and industrialization, if you're going to claim credit for Sputnik and Vostok, sorry, Vaskod, uh, and all the other space triumphs, well, you're going to have to accept Stalin, you're going to have to accept Afghanistan, you're going to have to accept everything in between. Likewise, he draws a fascinating parallel between, say, well, what really... Russia and Ukraine should be like the US and Canada or Germany and Austria. Culturally very, very close, great friendly nations, easy, frictionless travel between the two. Uh, of course, uh, to the best of my knowledge, at the moment, uh, the United States has not invaded any bits of Canada or indeed vice versa. But again, these are the very sort of artless parallels he tries to draw while he's trying to present himself and the Russian policy as being essentially the innocent one. And interestingly, I mean, he makes the point that, that actually Kiev needs Donbass to be, or the Donbass issue, to be unresolved because this way it kind of plays the role of the victim. Now, again, that's not entirely untrue. 
in the sense of, look, there's no great enthusiasm for the massive and thankless task that reincorporating, pacifying and reconstructing Donbass would be. And there are, you know, let's face it, there are many in Kiev who actually have said, look, we should just write Donbass off. Just say, OK, it's no longer part of the Ukraine. It's Russia's problem. Now go away. And likewise, yes, there are times when, however uncomfortable it is to say it, Ukraine has played the victim card to try and avert criticism about whether it's corruption, lack of reform, etc. But the point is, yes, these things happen because all kinds of shabby decisions get made in politics. But in the final analysis, Ukraine's sins such as they are, are as nothing to the more fundamental issue of the war, declared and undeclared, taking place in Crimea and Donbass. And therefore, this is an extraordinary document, because you start by saying, look, we're all friends, and Ukrainians, we all, we Russians all love them, really. And he does at one point go through a sort of a list of, uh, you know, the, the wonderful attributes of Ukrainians. He makes the point about the, the cultural interpenetration of Russians and Ukrainians, which is entirely true. I mean, this is why I mean, he, he calls it a tragedy and he's right to call it a tragedy. But he can't sustain that. He starts to dip into, as I say, the, the polemical and the paranoid. And this is therefore a version of history which has been given a damn good kicking to force it into accepting what is a politically expedient line for the Kremlin. Which raises a really fundamental question. Who on earth is this for? The Ukrainians? Hardly. I don't think that a few comments about how cheerful and hardworking they are and how amazingly well they did in resisting the Nazis during the Great Patriotic War are not going to reconcile them to all the rest of the bile being poured upon their nascent state. Is it for the West? Well, again, I, I really don't think so. The only people who are going to find any value and comfort in this are essentially the people who are looking for excuses to be apologists of the Kremlin anyway. So I think we can rule that out. What about then Russians? Is this about trying to convey a perspective to Russians? Truth of the matter, I don't really think so. Look, most Russians, I think it's fair to say, already think that Ukraine and Russia are pretty much one and the same. In some ways, I can't help but think the parallel is a little bit like how the English think about the Scots. A people with a particularly unruly history and a funny accent, but essentially us. Even having that attitude, and whether that's right or wrong, I'm, I'm not weighing into here and now, but I'm just saying I think that is a fairly widely held view. It doesn't actually mean that these people are implacably opposed to the idea of Scottish independence. If that happens, it's more that they don't really understand it. They don't really see the point. And that, I think, is actually how, how most Russians see this. And they certainly do not feel so uh, aggravated by the notion that they are at all enthused by the idea of bloody and fratricidal war over this. And I don't think this is going to change them one bit. So is this then a casus belli? Is this trying to lay out some kind of grounds for war? Well, again, look, obviously there is the immediate knee-jerk anti-Russian chorus who 
jump up and down and say that's clearly what this is uh, aimed at. This is actually a foreshadowing that there's going to be some terrible, terrible war and it's going to be soon. The trouble is these people basically tend to see grounds for imminent war in, in every facial tick of Putin's and every time he scratches his ear. In fact, again, if the Russians were going to go to war, they don't need this all this kind of historical justification. This is something, that in any case, if, if anything, they would actually mobilise after the event. But given that Putin's perspective, according to this document at least, is, yes, sure, you can have independence, but only within the 1922 boundaries... And given that he's already taken Crimea, I mean, the main change that actually any war as a result of, you know, fought on that basis would be, is actually to fight to be able to hand Lviv over to the Poles. And given that Poland is a country where, if it were possible, there are more people who dislike Russia more than Ukraine, somehow I don't think that we're imminently going to see the Russian armed forces deployed to that end. Increasingly, the more I think about it, the more I read through this text, I'm left with one conclusion. Who is this document for? It's for Vladimir Putin himself. It feels as if it's driven by frustration, by isolation, by impotence even as the invisible fingers of time and mortality pluck at his sleeve. This is really a lengthy apologia. This is really a lengthy attempt to try and justify his attitudes, try and make him on the right side of history. Maybe he's realised that, in fact, historically speaking, he is not going to be going down as the new Tsar who regathered all the Russias. If anything, he's actually going to be the Tsar who sees the Russias departing. Ukraine and quite likely in due course Belarus. So if his historical actions beyond Crimea aren't going to be his proper epitaph, at least he wants to try and convey the notion that he was on the right side of history after all. I'm not quite so sure that we or history would agree. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Only, please, 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 please